Hi, welcome to the Newberry Chronicles. This is a podcast where two people read through each and every Newberry medal-winning book, and then we talk about them. I'm Michael. And I'm Rebecca. And this time we're talking about Bud Not Buddy, the 2000 medal winner written by <clears throat> Christopher Paul Curtis. The man with three first names. Three first names, although when's the last time you met a Curtis? College. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I knew a Curtis when I was growing Don't up. do you remember but that I'm Curtis not... in college? I don't. He was the MK. Oh, missionary's kid. For all of you out there who didn't go well, to Tanika, Southern Baptist College, Tanika wanted me to date him instead of you. Whoa. This is why I didn't know you about don't Curtis. This? I don't at all. Um, I wasn't interested. Don't worry. Was Curtis hot? No, I don't think so. That's not very nice to Curtis if he listens to this part. Sorry, Curtis, the missionary's kid. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, Anyway, so this is uh, the Newberry Chronicles, and uh, we are about halfway through a margarita at the moment, if you can't tell. I should have said not as hot as you. That's more flattering towards Curtis. It's still not very flattering toward <laughs> Curtis. Anyway, um, so this time we're talking about the 2000 medal, medal winner, um, but not Buddy. But first, as we have been doing for the last few episodes, we're going to talk about uh, what we've been reading recently, uh, just just as a way to um, share a little bit about what's going on with us. So, Rebecca, what have you been reading recently? You have a long list in front of you. Well, I finished the three books that I talked about last time in the podcast, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on those. Also, I want to apologize because the last episode, I should have given a trigger warning to one of the books that I was reading about, and I did not, so I apologize Uh, for that to our listeners, but um, I do want to give a trigger warning right now for the book I'm about to talk about, No Longer Human, by Osamu Desai. Um, This book was very difficult to read. Um, It is considered to be um, Desai's suicide note, Um, and I read the graphic novel version of his work. So someone turned it into a manga work after um, the publication of his text. Because this, this is a Japanese novel, right? Yes. And so then... Yes. I don't yeah. even know if you would call it a novel, though. It was just so interesting. And I don't want to give anything away um, because the ending is very interesting and I, I don't want to ruin that for anybody that's going to read it. Um, but the book, I will say the book was very beautiful. Um, I thought if, if anybody is interested in reading this, it is worthwhile. Um, I think it's a very important work. It's basically about this character who does not know how to exist in the world and feel like he is human with, with everyone around him. Um, and I think I talked about this in the last podcast, so I won't go into it very much. But basically, you just explores how um, he's seeking relationships, like he's seeking to find his way in the world, but a lot of it is by masking how he really feels because he does feel so isolated from people. And um, things that really uh, jolt him out of that is when people can see through him and that terrifies him, and then terrible things happen because of his fear. And so that just continues and continues and continues. Um, until the very end where, um, which I, I won't give away. Um, so, so anyway, if, if you are interested in reading this, um, I, I found a lot of meaning in it. I, um, felt it was very beautiful, even with its, um, hard subject matter. And I would recommend the graphic novel version. Um, one thing I was confused of when I was reading it is how much of this were, and I can't remember now the person who illustrated it, who turned it into a graphic novel. Um, but one thing that was hard for me to understand was um, what was Desai's original works and what of it the, the person that illustrated it put in for the characters to kind of explain. So anyway, I think it's a very different experience, um, but it's very well done. I think I've shared before that like this past year, I've explored graphic novels a lot more. It's a genre I'm not very familiar with. And this book was very challenging for me because it was written um, 
like the pictures go from instead of left to right, from right to left, just as in Japanese literature. So it was a good exercise for my brain too. Um, anyway, so that that's that book. I also finished Bel Canto by Ann Patchett, which I've talked about a few times. Um, so I won't go into it in depth, but that was a beautiful book that I really want to talk to somebody about because the ending, um, I just needed to grieve with somebody. Um, so anyway, if anyone has read that book, please come and talk to me about it because we need to process. Or email us at newberrychronicles at gmail.com. Email us. But I, I was very excited about that book, and I want to read more by Aunt Patrick because it's very, very good. Um, I also finished Unsheltered by Barbara Kingsolver, which was just fine. I think that that book is just fine. Um, that is definitely not her most popular book, and I know she just came out with a new novel. Um, is it Demon Copperhead? Is that her new book? That sounds right. Okay. So people have raved about that, and I'm excited to read this. Unsheltered, I was just okay with. Um, I also have not read Poisonwood Bible. So this was my first King Solver. So I've not read her more famous books, which I, I think she's a good writer, so I'd be interested in reading those, even if this story was just kind of okay to me. Um, so those are three books that I finished. One book that I really, really, really loved that I uh, read was called Soil, the story of a black mother's garden. And this is a, um, like a, I wouldn't, it's by Camille T. Dungy. And it is a, I don't know if you would say memoir, but it is a, it's a, a book of nonfiction that Camille um, wrote about her experience in her garden. So it was kind of like her version of um, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard. Um, so within the same vein of like nature writing that Annie Dillard would have done or like Wendell Berry or other people like that. Um, what I really appreciate about her work is that she centers her experience as a black woman in America and as a black mother in America, right at the centrality of this book. And one thing that she talks a lot about is how white this this world of nature writing is and also how male it is and even when they aren't male writers um, writing these things the women um, tend to tone down like the other responsibilities that they hold in the world whether it's mothering or um, working or these other things and she refuses to isolate those things because they make her feel very unseen when she reads those works of art I am not a gardener and so this book, there was a lot of things that I didn't quite understand or like really, um, I don't want to say care about because that sounds insensitive, but like she talks a lot about certain flowers and things that I didn't connect with, but she um, does a really great job of comparing those to like her own life and the life of um, black people in America through slavery and civil rights and Black Lives Matter and today. And I, she does that in such a beautiful way. I also think she really is very honest about motherhood in the most beautiful and hard ways, like really exploring how it develops your level of empathy, but also can feel very stifling at times and very limiting. And I would say parenthood in general, but, you know, as a mother, that's the perspective that she's writing from. And um, it made me cry. It made me laugh. I just, I think it is a fantastic book. Um, I listened to it, and it was read by her, which was uh, a gift, really. Um, but the cover is also really pretty, so that's important. Um, but anyway, I love that book. I also listened to Three Women by Lisa Tadeo, which um, focuses on um, the stories of three different women and um, just really explores female desire and all that can come of that. So that was very good. I mean, I think Lisa did a great job. So each of the different women's stories, uh, she writes it as if she is them speaking and had done a lot of interviews and really delve into their story. I appreciate that each of these women have a very unique voice, um, even though it's Tadeo writing it all herself. Like, you really can't tell. I think she does that really well. Is it well. a novel or...? It's, a, it's like, it's not a novel. It's written as kind of, um, I don't know what you would call it. It's not a memoir, but it's like a dramatic, 
it's kind of like three different women's memoirs about their specific relationships with these different men. Okay. So, I don't. What would you call that? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what Storygraph called it, but I'm I'm taking too much time talking about this, so I'm going to move on. But that was very good. Um, the last book that I finished was Our Missing Hearts by Celeste Ng. Um, I had read oh, what was it? Little Fires Everywhere by her at the beginning of the year and really, really loved that book. That's one of her more popular ones. I read another one by hers, by her that I can't remember now. And this one was a dystopian novel um, based in, like, not too far in America, but um, it really focuses on the experiences of AAPI individuals in America at a time where they are kind of scapegoated for all the wrong that has happened in the world. Um, and it was very, very good. I am currently reading O Pioneers by Willa Cather. I've just started that, so I don't have a lot to say. And then Michael and I together are reading Sutri. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Yeah, we're actually reading Sutri with a small... By Cormac McCarthy. Cormac so. McCarthy. Um, it's a fairly early book by Cormac McCarthy. I think it was published in the 70s, but he had... Written it on and off for a, a decade or so, I think, before that. Um, but we're reading it with a small group of friends. And um, I don't think there's anyone who listens to this podcast who doesn't know us personally. But if there are people who don't know us personally, we live in Knoxville, Tennessee. And Sutri is a novel set in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, Cormac McCarthy lived here for some time. And uh, based on the novel so far, didn't really think very highly of Knoxville, Tennessee. Like it. This is a, um, I had read um, The Road and No Country for Old Men by Cormac McCarthy, which are late books by him, um, both 21st century novels that he wrote. And that style, of the, the style of those books is very spare, very, um, you know, very clean and um, uh, like, like precise in how it's worded. But I had always heard Cormac McCarthy connected to William Faulkner, which I never really understood. But reading this book, which was published in the 70s, I understand, because it is filled with these florid descriptions of um, Knoxville in, I think it's set in 1950 or 1951, something like that. Okay, good, because I was having trouble determining the setting. It is set in the 50s. I can't remember when. There's a there's a moment early on in the book where they give a date, like a letter's dated or something like that. Um, and so this is a Knoxville that we don't really know. We moved here in 2013. And a lot of the... We also weren't alive. We also weren't alive in the 1950s. Um, And also a lot of the big changes that kind of shaped like what Knoxville is happened in the 60s. So like the interstates coming through, um, the process of urban renewal where they, you know, bulldozed slums and created different highways and civic projects had not yet happened yet in the 50s. And so like... It's kind of an interesting historical look at like a Knoxville that really we never had a chance to know. And um, the the book is about this guy named Sutri, which is his last name, and I don't remember what his first name is. Um, I'm sure we'll get to it eventually. But he's like just come out of jail, and he's like walking around Knoxville, um, and he's like fishing and selling fish. And you get, like, at least one flashback that I've read so far of his life in jail where he's meeting all these different characters. Um, and these characters are really colorful. Um, there's this guy named uh, Harrogate, I think is his name, who's, like, this guy who gets put in jail for, um, I don't know, I don't want to get the explicit tag on this episode, but he's... he's um, He's humping uh, melons, and he gets put in jail for that. And uh, he's just, like, this really, uh, like, extravagantly silly character. Um, and so, like, the book is kind of like Sutri walking around Knoxville after he's out of jail and trying to put his life back together. He's, like, living on a boat, I think. Um, anyway, at least so far, that's what it's about. There's not a ton of plot and stuff, but there is a lot of description of different characters. There's a lot of, like descriptions of a very very like filthy knoxville like describing the tennessee river which goes through knoxville downtown like just all the garbage and like oil and and trash that's in the tennessee river um 
For instance, there's this really memorable image uh, early on in the book where he describes, he's describing the river and he talks about how there's used condoms in the river and they look like tapeworms uh, is the the description. And um, there's a lot of other like really grotesque things about like how he describes Knoxville. Um, and so, I mean, Knoxville is not a book or is not a city that's been like the focus of a ton of literary or cinematic attention. Um, so I think we kind of have to take what we can get. Like this book is like fairly legendary in Knoxville. There's a bar that's called Sutry's for example, downtown. Um, but it is kind of striking how, like, ugly Knoxville seems. Uh, but at the same time, like, it is kind of striking also that this dude's just, like, walking around and da- in, a, in a downtown Knoxville that seems far more lively and far more, like, uh, working class and far more um, walkable and traversable than the Knoxville we know now, which is, you know a pretty typical, like, American city in the sense of, like, downtown has become this, like, enclave of wealth and everything's kind of, like, boutique and fancy downtown and, um, you know, this is not the Knoxville that's depicted in this book and so far that's what's really interesting to me about the book is the kind of historical view of a city that I didn't really know. Um, what do you think about, how far are you, you're, you're not as far as I am. I'm about section. 30 pages in, so I haven't even got to, I'm about to read about the melons. The melons. I yeah. do love the part of the melons. It's very funny. There's a, so you know, about, I'm about 40 pages behind you. The Road and, and uh, No Country for Old Men are both good books, but they're not what I would describe as funny books. Right. But uh, Sutri is funny. I read The Road. That's my only McCarthy. A very not funny book. Right. Um, so but anyway. also, it's not as um, creative with language as this book is. Like He's truly a, a wordsmith in this book, in ways that I'm like, I don't have time to figure out all the things that you're saying, so I'm just going to press on. (laughs) Right. But it is beautiful. Yeah, we're supposed to meet up with our friends later this week and talk about the first section of the book, so um, I'm sure I'll talk about it again, or both of us will talk about it again on this podcast. Um, Yeah. But let's move on. Okay. That's that's what we're reading now. but uh, Dude, what wait, we just wait, 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 wait. You have finished Ulysses. I did. I think I talked about that last time. Had you finished? Okay. Yeah, because I was reading the John Brown biography, oh, which I finished. Right. That's right. And spoilers: John Brown's attempt to overthrow slavery was unsuccessful. Right. Unfortunately, um, we had to have a whole civil war about it instead yeah. of a uh, you know spoilers. Ins- instead of the uh, the slave <laughs> insurrection that John Brown was hoping to inspire. Um, so, anyway. Wait. Speaking of racism, let's talk about <laughs> Bud Not Buddy, um, which is a book by Christopher Paul Curtis, and you should talk about the author first, and then we'll get into what this book's about. Yes. So Christopher Paul, blah, sorry guys, Christopher Paul Curtis was born on May tenth, nineteen fifty-three, in Flint, Michigan. He was the second of five children. His father was a podiatrist who became a factory worker when his patients could no longer pay him. That um, must be kind of sad. I know. Like, I'm a practicing physician, and now I have to go work in a factory because it my really, patients are too poor. That's very depressing. It's very depressing. Um, he was also a union activist, and he was the first black production foreman at the Fisher Body Plant. Um, Curtis's mother was a homemaker, and then once her kids were older, she became a teacher in the Flint public school system. Um, Curtis attributes his love of books and reading to his mother, and um, his parents were also involved in the civil rights movement and brought Curtis and his siblings to several NAACP marches. Um, In 1967, Curtis was the first African-American student to be elected to the student council in his... um, junior high school's history. Um, And Curtis has said that despite reading a lot as a child, um, he found it really difficult to connect to books and stories because they were not by or about black people like himself. Um, After high school, he became part of a musical theater group called the Suitcase Theater, which performed in the U.S., Canada, and Europe. And he pursued a political science degree at the University of Michigan, Flint. But he did not do well in his classes, and so he um, ended up working full-time at GM 
and then he continued taking classes as a part-time student, but he didn't graduate until 2000. And he started... Which is when this book right. was won at, right. Uh, right. at Newbury Medal. So what, what dedication... For him to keep, I don't know. I just think this. He, this is he is an incredible. That is kind of amazing man. that he wrote this book. Yes, and won a Newbery Medal without having graduated college. I know he's incredible. He truly is. And um, this was not his first book, which we'll talk about in a minute. But um, while he was in college, he took a black literature course that introduced him to authors like Alice Walker and Zora Neale Hurston and Toni Morrison, and he was very inspired by their works, and that really um, drove him to begin writing. So during his breaks at GM is when he would read and write, like he and his friend would switch off so that they could each take 30 minute breaks and he would just shut out all the noise and read and write during that time. Um, Working at GM was very difficult for him. Um, He would, he like put heavy doors on cars, if I'm remembering correctly. And he would have nightmares about that work because it was so difficult for him. I would, too. He left GM in 1985, and then he took a series of low-paying jobs. So in 1993, his wife convinced him to take a year off of work and just to focus on his writing, which your wife has also talked about you doing. So we'll talk about this later. One of us needs to work. (laughs) I know. We've talked about trading off. But anyway... He took a writing course at the University at, at the University of Michigan that we were just talking about. And he entered several works into a contest for the Hopwood Awards. And one of those works that he submitted was the Watsons Go to Florida. And then an essay about his career in the auto factory. And his novel, The Watsons Go to Florida, was selected by Delacorte Press for publication. But... After his son brought home Dudley Randall's poem, The Ballad of Birmingham, he was inspired to change the setting from Florida to Birmingham. And it was eventually published in 1995 as The Watsons Go to Birmingham, 1963. And it was, that book was very, very successful. Um, it was named on the ALA's list of best books for young adults, and it also won a Newbery Honor. Um, and then it won the Coretta Scott King Honor Book Award, along with 25 other awards and honors. What wow. a way to, you know, I don't think I've first heard. Have you heard novel. of this book? I yes. feel kind of ignorant. My friend Jamie it. read it in the sixth grade, but okay. I did not read it. I have not but heard it about was it very, whatsoever. Um, I, I remember it really being promoted in middle school. Um, anyway, his second book, Bud Not Buddy, which we're going to talk about today, uh, was published in 1999, and it also won numerous awards. Including so, the Newbery Medal. Curtis founded the Nobody But Curtis Foundation as a way to connect with young people and improve literacy levels across North America and Africa. Um, and one way that he did this is by sending educational materials, technology, and other supplies to schools in need, as well as offering scholarships to students. Um, I think this is so sweet. But he wrote a lot of his stories and books in the children's room of the library because he really liked the energy that the kids provided and felt the librarians were particularly wonderful. And as a mom who has just this year begun taking her kids to the children's room at the library very regularly, I completely agree with him. It's truly a magical and wonderful place that um, I hope is always in the world, is what I'll say. I can't imagine writing in it, though. That seems I can't, distracting. I Well, I just think it's so sweet. That is sweet. Anyway, he tends to be an unstructured writer, and he chooses to follow the voices of his characters rather than outline a specific plot. And a lot of... He said that Toni Morrison is one of his favorite writers and was really inspired by by her works. Um, He married his first wife, who we talked about, earlier, convincing him to take off a year of writing. Her name um, is Kay Sukram, I guess is how you pronounce it. She is from Trinidad, and um, they moved to, he moved, Curtis moved to Windsor, Ontario to live with her because she was unable to get a U.S. work visa, and I think he still lives there today. They have two children together, Stephen and Sydney. They separated in the late 2000s, and he married, I am probably butchering the pronunciation, but um, Habon Adin, and they also have two children together, and I am not going to attempt to pronounce them. Um, He, Curtis, particularly enjoys writing historical fiction, 
and many of his books are set in Flint, Michigan, um, as he tends to draw on his personal experiences of growing up there. Um, he's written a total of eight novels, novels and has penned introductions to several prominent books, in addition to writing articles for newspapers and magazines. And the last thing I'll say about him is he has four rules to becoming a writer. Number one, write every day. Number two, have fun with your writing. Number three, be patient with your writing. And number four, ignore all the rules. So I don't know which rules we're talking about, but that is Christopher Paul Curtis. It's interesting that he has rules because as I talked about the plot of uh, But Not Buddy, mm-hmm. I think it's important to point out that one of the kind of conceits of the book is that, so it's about this kid named Bud, and he is a an orphan who is in, uh, like, state foster care, basically. Like, he's been living in a group home, but is placed in foster care. But anyway, as an orphan, he's had to become very self-reliant and has created these rules for himself. And we never hear all of the rules. We hear, we hear several, and they always have very high numbers associated with them, like Rule 56 and stuff like that. Or 500, and yeah. it's in the 500s. So anyway... Um, it's an interesting connection. So, uh, as I mentioned, this is a book about this guy named Bud. He specifically does not want to be called Buddy. He wants to be called Bud, you know, hence the title. And uh, most of the characters make fun of him for that. Like, when he says, Bud, not Buddy, when he introduces himself, they just start calling him Bud, not Buddy. Um, but this is kind of like a, um, what would you call it, picaresque novel? Is that what the... Anyway, the term I'm looking for is like a book like Huckleberry Finn or something where... You're kind of following this character around as they are traveling and getting into different, um, mostly unrelated, kind of episodic incidents. Um, So this is set in the 1930s, so obviously during the Great Depression. It is set in Flint, Michigan, um, and the book opens with Bud being put into foster care um, for this this family, uh, who ends up being fairly terrible to him. And so he escapes this family and then is going to try to find uh, a person that he thinks is his father, um, whose name is Herman E. Calloway. Um, and he thinks it's his father because his mother, whom uh, has died of an illness, but when he was old enough to have remembered his interactions with his mother, uh, had this poster of Herman E. Calloway and the... I can't remember the name of his band at the time, but it's like a poster of them perf- uh, advertising a performance of, of theirs. And uh, because of the way that his mother has talked about Herman E. Calloway, he's assumed, this man must have been my father. Um, and so when he runs away from the foster care, um, from the foster family, he decides, I'm going to go find Herman E. Calloway, my father. And he finds out eventually that there is a musician named Herman E. Calloway who lives in Grand Rapids. Um, it is Grand Rapids, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Grand Rapids that uh, he must go to. And so he, he goes through this whole thing where he tries to hitchhike to Grand Rapids, and he gets picked up by this guy named Lefty, who ends up being a union organizer, kind of covertly for the railroad uh, laborers. Um, he also, like, ends up in, like, um, like one of those, like, kind of, like, uh, basically tent cities, like Hoovervilles, you know, um, and he runs into, uh, and that Hooverville is like broken up by the police. Um, he runs into also some jazz musicians on his way to getting into, um, getting to Herman E. Calloway. And he eventually makes it to Grand Rapids and uh, meets Herman E. Calloway. And I'm not sure if I want to spoil who it is, like, or what happens when um, he gets there. Because it is like the end of the book. Yeah. Um, but he does eventually meet Herman Calloway, um, who is a jazz musician, uh, who does have a connection to his mother. And um, that's kind of like where the book ends. And um, I'm being kind of vague with a lot of the stuff, because a lot of it is I could just sit here listing out all the things that happened, because it is yeah. very much like this thing happened, and we spent a few chapters in this location, then he runs away to this location. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the real organizing principle is... Uh, Uh, Bud himself is a character and just trying to survive in the world. Like, not only is he an orphan, but it is also the Great Depression. And so, like, once he is out of state custody, he then has to deal with the fact that, like, there is, um, 
you know, enormous poverty and uh, kind of unrest in the in, in in the country that he encounters. And not only that, but he is a black kid, and so he it, it's not like a central focus of the book, but he knows he has to navigate a world in which like he has to be careful around white people in the 1930s. Um, and so a lot of it is kind of like organized around those like more like themes rather than like a plot. Like it's not a plot that you just like lay out this happens and then this happens and then this happens as a cause and effect chain because a lot of it is kind of isolated incidents and it almost feels like a book that's organized around like things that the author was interested in in history and was interested in like kind of using this structure to explore like Bud the character Almost like, I don't really want to, I shouldn't compare this to Forrest Gump because Forrest Gump is a much sillier story than this, but um, almost like Forrest Gump, he like happens to stumble into all sorts of historically significant things occurring. Um, But unlike Forrest Gump, it's not like celebrities he encounters. It's like he is going through every little slice of like what life was like for working and homeless people during the Great Depression. So, like, the kind of the Hoovervilles, conflict with the police, conflict with bosses over, like, strikes and labor organizing, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the, the racial tensions, the, the sense of, like, poverty, but also camaraderie among people who, you know, were impoverished and, you know, at the bottom of the social hierarchy, you know, in the Great Depression. Um, and he eventually finds a sense of belonging in Grand Rapids mm-hmm. uh, as he, like, approaches... Um, Herman Calloway. Um, anyway, is there anything that you think I missed uh, with the summary there? No, I think it is important to note, though, that Curtis based the two characters, um, Mr. Lewis, that we talked about, that gives him that he... Lefty uh, Lewis. Yes, Lefty Lewis, that gives him a ride to Grand Rapids, and Herbert, Call- Herbert Calloway... Um, is it Herbert or Herman? Herman, sorry. Okay. Herman Calloway. He bases both of those men off his own two grandfathers. Um, one of his grandfathers was in a jazz band, and one of his um, grandfathers was a red cap. Is that the term? I think it the porter, like he's a porter. Yeah. Um, but he was also a labor organizer as well. So he um, based both those characters off his own grandfathers, which I thought was sweet. Um, I'll also say this book had a very um, helpful afterward by Curtis that kind of explains um, like his inspiration for the book. But I think he does a good job of saying like these people that Bud ends up meeting, um, Mr. Calloway and his band, they are um, like successful jazz musicians. So they are not struggling as much in the depression as other people. But he says it's important to note that many people did um, and that this this is kind of an exception, especially for black people in America. And um, one thing that I thought was worthwhile in the book as well is that um, he talks about that even with the success that his uh, that Herman Calloway has in the jazz band, um, they couldn't own things outright as black people, and they had to have a white person in the band so that the home could be owned in his name and they could book gigs in his name. Um, So anyway, I just think that that is just important um, things that Curtis highlights both in the novel and also in afterward. Yeah. Yeah. I I did think it was interesting how, because I didn't, I wouldn't have thought um, having read it that there was like a family connection to it, but in a certain sense, I mean like Curtis wasn't an orphan in the 1930s, so mm-hmm. it's not it's not autobiographical in that sense, but in another sense it is like it's a work of kind of like family um, uh, like family archaeology almost like you know where he is recreating the settings in which like his grandparents mm-hmm. lived mm-hmm. Um, and that was interesting to read after the book was finished. Um, I thought it was interesting is afterward he talked about it as a kid. Whenever his grandparents would talk about the Great Depression, he kind of tuned them out. It was like, oh, that's just old folks' talk. They're reminiscing again. Um, but he has very deep regrets about that, that he didn't pay more attention to their story and had to do a lot of research after the fact on his own 
to learn more about that when he could have been, you know, really receiving that oral, oral history in a more meaningful way. And so he kind of writes this sweet um, encouragement to his to the readers of his books to pay attention to the stories of their grandparents and their parents. And I thought that was sweet. But anyway. You've already kind of gotten into this, but what did you like about the book, Rebecca? I really like um, the story is told completely from Bud's perspective, and he is the narrator in the book as well. Um, I really like that. I like hearing his voice. Um, I This book is funny to me because... There are certain scenes where they really set you up for one thing and you think something terrible is about to happen, but then it's really kind of silly. Like, I don't know if you remember in the very beginning of the book when he's escaping the foster home, you kind of think that he's about to to kill them. Like, you think that, you know, he knows where their gun is and he gets the gun. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not prepared for what this is going to be. But he it would have just, been a very different book if this just, had been like a kid who murdered his I know, or, or even just scared them with the gun, you know? Yeah. Like, but, but he's scared of the gun and what they could do if they catch him. So what he does is he just puts it outside, and then he puts his foster brother, the, the biological son's, uh, like fingers in water to make him pee all over himself. And that's his big, deep revenge is that, like, he's going to himself in the bed so it's like little things like that that you can tell this is a kid that's gone through really traumatic things but still has the heart and mind of a child in um very funny ways so I, I think that um Curtis does that really well of like um like talking about a story with really hard um things but but approaching it with a great deal of appropriate humor. And I think he does that well and balances those very well, which is very appealing to a a child, you know, an upper elementary or middle school that's going to be reading this. Um, I love that the library is a safe place for Bud. I don't know if we talked about that, but... We didn't. But when he's with the foster family, he'll... Or when he runs away from the foster family, he spends all day at the library, and that's where he researches... um, What does he? What does he research? He learns about the atlas how, and how and far how to get away. to Grand Rapids. Yeah. That's right. But even before that, he's found safe people at the library, and I, I always think that's beautiful. But especially considering that the library was a very safe place for Curtis, and I think he's kind of giving a very sweet tribute to the children's librarians that meant so much to him and his writing career. Um, and kind of, I don't know. I just think it's really neat to learn about. That's why I appreciate that we are able to do this and learn about the writer's lives along with the books because I think it gives it a lot greater depth and meaning. Um, But I just thought that was a sweet thing. Um, I also really enjoyed Bud's not only looking for his family, but he's trying to recapture a sense of home that he's never had since his mom died. Um, And I think that that search for home and belonging is honestly more meaningful to him than just finding out who his dad is. You know, like, that's what he's looking for, and that's what he finds. And I think that that was a a beautiful thing. And I don't know if this last thing is something that I would consider, like, something that I like, but I think it's worth noting that I think this book is very palatable for white audiences and children. Um, And... What do you mean by that? Like... It's not a book that I think is going to be banned, you know, oh, which true. I don't necessarily think is like, um, like necessarily a strength because I think books that get banned are, are very honest about history in a helpful way for kids. Um, but I think that one, one thing I learned in the writer bio is what Curtis was really encouraged to do by his publishers and his editors is to really make his works um, like more appealing for white audiences because Curtis grew up in mainly um, African American groups and environments and didn't, you know, really wrote from that perspective in a way that his publishers and editors thought that would be isolating, um, which is sad considering that Curtis felt very isolated in the books that he read because they were all about white people. So I, you know, there's a lot of sadness there that he had to write books that would um, get read by white people and be appealing to them. So one thing I mean is that 
this book like talks about racism and it, it, it talks about how, you know, the black characters are going to have experiences different than the white characters, but it doesn't harp on that in any way. And everything's pretty, um, like, congenial, I guess you'd say, among the right. characters. Yeah, there's, like, like a brief mention don't... of, there's, like, a small town outside of Flint that mm-hmm. is where Lefty picks him up uh, in the middle of the night, yeah. basically. And Lefty, like, mentions that it's basically a sundown town, right? Yes. Where, like, you know, black people aren't supposed to be at night. But that's the only mention of it. And everything and... is just fine between him and the police officer when they get pulled over. And there's a white person in the band, and he's there because he has to be, but everybody gets along really well. So I think Curtis is, like, touching on these topics, but is definitely towing the line. Um, and I don't, I don't want to say that that is, like, a strength of the book. I also don't think it's a fault of the book. I think it's worthwhile that these books exist that people can read and and it, it really be kind of the jumping point to look at history. And you made a good point, Michael, we were talking about this, is that like this book could very easily be like a part of a larger unit in school where you're talking about the Great Depression or race relations or like jazz music, right. you know? And um, I think that that is, I think it's important that he... Um, has written this book and that because it exists that people can read it and not, um, I don't know, can really be a jumping point for talking about these things in a more meaningful way. Yeah. Um, I, I don't agree. know if I explain myself. No, well. I agree. At the same time though, I think there are things in which it paints the, the depression that, um, they're not, it's not contested history the way that he, he presents the depression, but it's also, things about the depression that I actually didn't learn about until I was an adult. Um, for instance, the centrality of labor organizing to mm-hmm. the depression was not something I learned about until I was an adult. Yeah. And there is something like somewhat subversive in, I mean, the year 2000, that's like, you know, historically like one of the low points in terms of labor power in the United States, you know, like the 2000s to, to like now, like, you know, this is kind of like the low point. Uh, you know, after, like, you know, a couple decades of concerted, like, you know, de-dismantling of unions and things like that. Um, or in Flint, you know, the the, the closure of um, American manufacturing and moving it overseas and things like that, you know, to, to not, not exclusively to do this, but as a result, like, broke up, you know, union uh, chapters and stuff. And you know, to have a character who is just saying that, and, like, at the time that he's doing this, like, what he's doing is um, dangerous to him. Like, he mentions that he has to be covert in, like, spreading this information about the union uh, because the the police, as well as the, um, the people who run the railroad, will try to, 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 to stop him from doing that, and the implication is that he'll be killed. And, like, um, I mean, at the time, you know, some of the largest, um, some of the largest and most violent conflicts in American history happened in the early 20th century, um, between unions and, um, you know, the managers and, and bosses and stuff. And the police usually is on the side of the bosses, but not exclusively. Um, and I don't feel like that's really talked about that much when you're this young, like when you're the audience for this book, which is very definitely like, upper elementary, I think, like it's fair to say, maybe early middle school. Um, And to just have a character talking about that stuff, or for instance, I learned about Hoovervilles when I was growing up, but what I did not learn, and this book depicts, is the police coming and basically saying it's illegal to be camping here. You know, Hoovervilles were always depicted as... Which is still happening, And and that's still happening, right? And like, you know, there is that kind of weird, you know, kind of strikingly positive interaction with the police, you know, with Lefty. Mm-hmm. But there's a strikingly negative one in which, like, the, um, the uh, what is it, like, some sort of law enforcement has, like, basically conscripted a bunch of people and given them guns and said, we need to go break up this camp. And chose to break up the camp when they knew 
that a lot of the adult males would be trying to jump the train to to get work. Right, exactly. And they burn their stuff. Yeah, they like burn all their stuff. And like for the record, I mean, I talked about Knoxville and one of the process, you know, in talking about Saturdays, and one of the processes by which Knoxville's downtown has become an enclave of wealth is that the police has been have been very aggressive in confiscate breaking up homeless you know camps of, of unhoused people and then not simply breaking up the camps but like confiscating and destroying their tents and stuff yeah. you know and so like it's not as if this was exclusive to the depression um obviously but when i learned about hoovervilles in high school it was in high school when i learned about them i did not learn about this antagonistic relationship with the police which is depicted in this book and anyway i would say that my main positive takeaway with the book is it was just kind of fun to see um, a version of um, this time period presented through a through a lens that I don't know. May, maybe it's just the the specific way in I in which I was educated in high school when I learned about this stuff, you know, in the, in the kind of like you know wealthy sub, southern suburb. Um, and maybe more people learned about this than I did, but it, it was kind of fun to like see like, oh, this is like, um, I guess I, I remember the depression mostly being about the Dust Bowl when I when I was taught about it, and that's obviously a oh, thing, really? you know. Like we learned yeah. about the stock market crash, and then we'd switch to the Grapes of Wrath and stuff. Um, okay, you know, and it was interesting to be hearing from it from a like a black perspective, mm-hmm. um, and b. A northern perspective, like in Michigan, um, as opposed to like the southwest, which is like a lot of the talk about, you know, the Dust Bowl is like in the in the Midwest and and West and South. Um, And I don't know. I mean, I like Bud as a character. Um, He was like an enjoyable, like kind of cute kid. And I also I always enjoy books that are like picaresque. Like I read mm-hmm. Don Quixote a few years ago and that was very fun. And I love Huckleberry Finn and like books that are like that where it's like you follow a character as they like, you know, go through all these like scrapes and, and episodic like kind of misadventures. I always enjoy that structure and this book definitely has that structure to it. Um, so I think like, like I said, like the history, com- the historical component is what most caught me off guard and made me interested in the book. Um, but I think that would only work with a narrator character that you were at least a little bit invested in, and I yeah. was with Bud. Yeah. Um, what did did you did you dislike anything about the book? Yeah, I think uh, the rules just didn't hit for me. Like you know, Bud. Like anytime something happens, like a conversation comes up that he's concerned about, he says, "Oh, here's my rule number." Blah 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 blah. Um, of, it's something about, like, Yeah, ways, of- ways to survive in life, or it's something like that. It's, um, here, you keep talking, I'm going to try to... I, I just, like, I understand that Bud is a cute little narrator, and I don't mean that to be, like, um, condescending. I think it says rules and things, like, is rules that... Rules and things. Yeah, rules and things, number 83, or number But it's, like, got a subtitle for, um... Bud Caldwell's rules and things to have a funner life and make and it. make a better liar out of yourself. And so, you know, he just, he says these all the time, like, to kind of prepare you for the conversation that's about to happen. And I just... And it'll be, it'll be things like, if an adult says, um, can I, can I tell you a secret? What they're probably going to tell you something bad or something, yeah. you know, things like that. Yeah. Or like how to respond to certain social situations um, because of things that have happened to him before that's, you know, had him make this a rule for life. Um, And I just felt they were unnecessary for us to see into Bud's head because I think that's the intention is for us to, like, really experience these things as he is experiencing them in his child's mind. And I don't know, it just made the book feel like one of those annoying kids sitcoms where there's that voiceover that you really are bothered by. Lizzie McGuire did this. You know, there's other things yeah. that I just Well, like, in fact, um, there, there's a... Was it Nickelodeon? Ned's Declassified yes! School Survival Guide where he actually does yes! have rules. And I thought of Ned as I was reading this, and I did not like that show. I just <laughs> was very annoyed by it. My best friend loved it, but I always thought, this is so boring. I would just like to hear a story. And so that's what I 
wanted from Bud. I didn't want the rules. I just wanted to experience more of his thoughts and fears with like descriptive language or more stories about his past. Um, and this also kind of leads me to the other thing is that like I, okay, listeners, I think that you've learned this by now. I am not a fan of the like very episodic novel that just kind of like bounces around that's just not my favorite thing I understand it's a genre it's important like I can appreciate it's worthwhile but like what I wanted in this book none of the scenes I really felt like I had a lot of time to get to know the characters very well and be moved by their conversations and things so I felt like this book would be a much better series like a series of novels where we get to know all these people better. And I also think it would make a really good TV show. Not like Ned's Declassified. Wouldn't that be funny, though, no. if it opened like, with a little composition notebook no, like I Ned's would, Declassified? I would not support that. But, well, I'm just kidding. Like, I, I can see why that would be important, and they can make that cute. But I just, I, I said this about New Kid, too, but I feel like with both of these, they would make a really good TV show or, like, a limited series sort of thing. Yes. Okay, Masterpiece Theater, if you want to be less white. I don't make want to this... see Masterpiece Theater do, do no. this. this well, would, that would be silly. Well, Can you imagine, like, Mozart opening a scene <laughs> with this? Like, I'm just saying, I think there's a place for this kind of, like, I don't know, like a limited series no, or agree. something like that. But I also understand that's, like, a personal preference. Like, this is a genre, like, concern. But I just, like, I wanted the climax of the book we barely spent any time on, which is where I really wanted to know more about things. And I feel like if we, if this was part of a series, he could have spent more time with his mother. We could have spent more time like navigating the great depression. We could have spent more time with his new family. Um, and I just, I, I just felt, I felt like this book had a lot of important things to say, but it was kind of like unremarkable. I don't know. Yeah. I That's think, pretty damning, but I don't mean for it to sound that way. I think, like, for as much as I liked the character of Buddy as, like, a kind of affable and cute narrator kid, there's, like, a little rascals-ish quality to him in the sense of, like, he's going through things that are, like, kind of horrific, you know, and, you know, is in extreme poverty, of course, and all this sort of stuff. But he's, like, he kind of maintains a certain, like, affect that is almost, like, comedic through the whole thing. And, like, there's a way to do that that's that's really good. But um, sometimes it, I felt like that there was, like, a disconnect between the kind of light tone and then the things that were happening to him. And maybe Which it's, I think it's, also makes sense as we understand now the way that Curtis, like, structures his novels is on the voice of his characters and not necessarily the plot of what's happening to them. Right. I, I agree. Um, and I think that, like, what, what felt missing, and I don't know that it really belongs in this book, but, like, what felt missing is, like, this kid just is kind of like this unflappable like kid optimistic and like you know very like willing and able to just adapt himself to every new environment that he gets into and that's very that makes the book very readable and it makes it like never too heavy even when it's dealing with some of the heavier like historical stuff that I talked about earlier but there's also a balance with like you have to uh, match that with an understanding of, like, what is the weight of, like, what this kid has experienced. And there's a few moments when it's like that, particularly towards the end, when he has to talk about his mother more and stuff like that. There is a much greater sense of, um, oh, you know, he has gone through some really heavy stuff and, like, has to work through complex emotions but for a lot of the book, the emotions aren't that complex because he has a very definitive, like, defined goal, which is, like, I'm finding my father, and he is convinced that Herman Calloway is his father, and he just tells everybody that, and he's just, like, determined and, and plucky and trying to go go to Grand Rapids to find him. And I don't know. I don't want a book... I don't think this book needed to be a book about a kid who has, like, PTSD and is 
like has attachment disorders and and things like that, you know, which is probably what would have happened to this kid in real life. You know, I think there's room for stories not to like every story about an orphan has to be about that. But until the very end, like the very end ends up being very poignant, I think, like when he finally kind of finds belonging and connection in Grand Rapids. But until the very end, it's kind of hard to determine what's going on in this kid's head beyond just like the immediate situation that's presented to him. Like he has a long-term goal, which is getting to Grand Rapids. Then he always has a short-term goal, which is how am I going to deal with this immediate situation I'm in? I'm in the Hooverville or I'm in this abusive foster care or, or something like that. And I think for this book, so it's not exactly the thing I disliked about this book, but I think for this book to have been more resonant for me would have been moments that gestured toward a richer psychological life that this kid has. And maybe that's like an unfair thing to say about a book that's about like a, how old is this kid? Like eight or something like, and it's 11 and it's geared toward people who are about that age. Like maybe that's an unfair thing to ask of a book like that, you know, because those are very difficult and complex things that like, you know, we shouldn't ask people to have to deal with, um, and we certainly shouldn't wish characters had to deal with the more anguished psychology, but like there is like I feel like a balance. Yes. And sometimes this book feels a little bit glib. Maybe glib is the wrong word, but it feels it feels as if it's not taking seriously what this kid has experienced on like the psychological weight level. Like there is always a very clear sense of how this fits into the tapestry of history. Like that is always very clear. But in terms of like, um, you know, this kid has been abused in in state care and now he's being abused in a foster care system. And for a lot of that, this kid is just like, he's not like quipping through it, but he's like saying his rules like, uh oh, when an adult says this, you know, this is what's coming up. And that felt a little bit too light of a touch for some of this stuff. And I don't know. I will say, I think we get a lot of that like, pathos and like emotional release from the adults in the book we just don't hear a lot from them like miss hill and then herman like with their expression of emotions we see a lot of what we thought we would see from bud and we don't which i think is meaningful because as a kid those things don't make sense so much to us like in the moment of like the depth of what we've been through until an adult voices those or like mirrors the emotions that we can't have and so I think Curtis does that well but because we just hear from Bud we don't get to to see that full like depth of experience yeah and maybe and again like I don't know if this is so much what's is what's wrong with the book like I don't really know that it would have been the appropriate choice to have a more like like a psychologically the, the the singer, right? Yeah. The woman singer in the yeah. jazz band. I don't Ms. remember her Thomas, name. Miss Thomas, I think, is her name. Miss Hill is the librarian that he likes. But anyway. Sorry. Whatever the case. Like, I don't know that it would have been appropriate for this specific book to have been, like, you know... Like, I think of Huckleberry Finn, which is, like, at some points very harrowing in terms of, like, the the psychological, like, weight of what's happened, you know, and... and I don't think this book needed to be as grim as Huckleberry Finn can be at moments, you know, but um, I think that for me to attach myself more to this book rather than just be kind of interested in the history it describes, Mm -hmm. that's what I would have needed. Yeah, I do. I think it's a good book for children in that way, though. Like, I think this is a really good book for kids to start learning about these things, which I think I said was like one of its greatest strengths. But like as an adult, it, it feels kind of, like, lacking, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's, like, a little bit thin in places. Yes. Like it, it. And I said this already, but in times it feels like the author was more interested in the history than he was in the characters that mm-hmm. were experiencing the history. Mm-hmm. And that's a perfectly fine way to, to do a book. I mean, there's lots of historical fiction where that's the case. Um, but for me to connect with it more than I did, mm-hmm. which I liked it okay, but... I didn't love it, and I think the, the missing pieces, some of those more like, you know, psychologically complex or more poignant ideas don't really come into play until the very end of yeah. the book. Yeah, I agree. 
I still give it a thumbs up, though. I also would give it a thumbs up. Um, so, yeah. Um, that's, uh, that's Bud Not Buddy. What's our next book, Rebecca? Flora and Ulysses. Which is Kate DeCamelo, right? Yes, I'm very excited about it because I love Kate DeCamelo, but I've never read this book. And that was, the I think, the 2014 winner? Yeah, so this is this book is just barely in the, the 2010, the 2000s, so now we're moving into the 2010s. And this is our first time doing a second book by an author yes, in this podcast. So, um, yeah, 2014 winner. Yeah, so we'll be doing Flora and Ulysses colon the illuminated adventures and uh yeah that'll that'll be it um so this is the end of uh this episode don't forget that if you have feedback for us you can email us um our email address is newberrychronicles at gmail.com and yeah thank you for listening bye